If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Talent Equation Podcast. If you are passionate about helping young people to unleash their potential and want to find ways to do that better, then you've come to the right place. The Talent Equation Podcast seeks to answer the important questions facing parents, coaches, and talent developers as they try to help young people become the best they can be. This is a series of unscripted, unpolished conversations between people at the razor's edge of the talent community who are prepared to share their knowledge, experiences, and challenges in an effort to help others get better faster. Listen, reflect, and don't forget to join the discussion at thetalentequation.co.uk. Enjoy the show. Well, I'm really, really happy to be able to welcome Jason DeVos to The Talent Equation. Jason, welcome. Thank you. I've been uh, a long-time listener of your podcast, and uh, I want to thank you for all the work you're doing because it's really uh, it's helped uh, immensely in a lot of the work we're doing here. And, and you've also kept me company on the many journeys I've had across the country as, uh, as I listen to your podcast and listen to your guests and, and try and uh, try and learn something on my travels. No, knowing the size uh, of, of the country you're, you're based in in Canada, um, I'm probably going to have to do some longer ones just to help <laughs> you with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, if you put a five-hour podcast together, that would be decent <laughs> because that's probably the length of uh, the longest flight that I've taken in our country. But uh, yeah, we, I mean, one of the big challenges we have in Canada is the geography. Um, you throw climate on top of that where some parts of our country – you can't play football outside because there are no fields. Um, so the indoor game becomes uh, very much a priority. So we've got such huge variance in Canada from one coast to the next and from north to south in terms of geography, climate, infrastructure, um, you know, and, and culture that uh, trying to find a one-size-fits-all solution to that is near on impossible. 
I very nearly, uh, very nearly took a, a role over in Canada working for the Ontario Golf Association. Working oh, for very good. A fine gentleman called Mike Kelly. Um, if he's mm-hmm. listening, he can uh, he can give me a call anytime. I'm, I'm always available. <laughs> But um, Mike, uh, I, when I was looking at it, I was looking at sort of the logistics of what the role might look like. And then uh, I discovered, I can't remember exactly where I got the data from, but uh, apparently if you go from Toronto and drive for about 22 hours south, you arrive in Florida. But if you go from Toronto and drive 22 hours north, you're still in Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a big country. I mean, I, I think uh, it, and, until, you, until you arrive here, if you're a foreigner, if you've never been here, until you arrive here and you actually try and travel between cities in a car, you don't realize just how big Canada is uh, as, a, as a nation. Uh, we're almost the, the same geographical landmass size as continental Europe. Yeah. So, you know, imagine having to do a job where you've got to travel from one side of Europe to the other. Uh, and then you have a, a relatively small staff and uh, you, know, you, you have a, the, the, the cultural aspects as well, which are, which are huge. I mean, we're such a diverse country and this is one of the things that makes us unique and it makes us proud to be Canadians is that we are very much a melting pot of different cultures. Um, but it's, it's challenging because you have different uh, philosophies, different beliefs, different ideas and, and getting everyone together on the same page um, working towards the same outcome is, is challenging for sure. Um, but I, I choose to look at it from the positive perspective of because we're so diverse, we're able to think differently than other people do and, uh, and other nations do perhaps. And we may be able to find creative solutions that wouldn't exist in a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a very homogenous type culture. Yeah. I, I, I was speaking last week with, um, uh, James Vaughan about different cultures and some of the challenges that we face and it's probably something we can uh, we can come on to uh, one of the things is we've jumped straight into the conversation and what, one thing I haven't asked you is maybe if you can give everybody a bit of a uh, a bit of a background as to what you're doing now but also more important more importantly kind of what what led to this what's your what's your backstory <laughs> yeah backstory wow um, I'll try and keep it brief because I don't want to bore anybody <laughs> I'm always conscious of, of talking about yourself and you, you, know, you, you, you tell your story over and over again. And I've told my story so many times that I, it gets more and more unbelievable every time I tell it. You know, I, <laughs> I, was a, I was a kid. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Southwestern Ontario on a dirt road, um, played multiple sports as a kid growing up, um, played hockey in the winter, soccer in the summer, as we call it here. Um, and, and, you know, had to make a decision when I was ready to make the decision on which sport I wanted to focus on. Uh, and I chose football at the age of 12. Um, a whole bunch of things happened that year for me. One was Canada qualified for the World Cup and played in 86 in Mexico. Um, that was a massive um, uh, inspirational event for me to see Canada playing at, at the world stage. Um, I tasted failure for the first time <laughs> as, a, as a 12-year-old. I was... Uh, cut from the under 14 Ontario provincial team um, and, and sort of the, the, the confluence of those events taking place at the same time really shaped my future in a lot of ways because um, suffering that disappointment um, really shaped the, the, the rest of my sporting career, I would say. Um, you know, it was my first time away from home as a 12-year-old kid 
we had a training camp, which was done over a weekend at York University. And all the best players from the province of Ontario came together for this tryout. And at the end of the weekend, they were going to select the, the, the best team, you know, 20 players that were going to go on and, and represent Ontario, the province. And, you know, like, like everyone else, I sat in the, in the auditorium at the end and listened to the coaches reading off the names of the players that were selected. And, and uh, I wasn't one of them. And I felt sick to my stomach. I, I never experienced that in my life. Um, and I walked out of the auditorium at the end and my father saw me and he, he knew right away as all parents can tell when there's something wrong with their child. Uh, and he just said to me, look, go talk to the coaches, find out why you weren't selected and, and, uh, we'll go, we'll go home. And, uh, so I went and talked to the coaches and, and, you know, they said to me, they said, you, you don't know how to defend. Uh, you, you're not fit enough. Your, your, your levels aren't high enough and, and you've got to learn these things. So I took that on board and I went, went back to my dad and got in the car and started driving home. And, uh, and he said to me after about an hour, I, he didn't say a word, nothing, just, it was quiet. And, uh, I was sitting there, you know, fighting back tears in the car because I'd never experienced that failure in my life. And, and he said to me, he says, look, he says, you, you have a choice to make you, um, and you have to make it. I can't make it for you. You never have to feel like this again. You can go back to doing the things that you're really good at and focus on that and never push yourself outside your comfort zone and, and you, you know, you'll probably be okay. Um, that's one choice. Or you can listen to your coaches and you can, you can work on your weaknesses and you can try and get better. Um, and he said, I won't make that decision for you. You've got to make that choice yourself. And you know, it's, it's really simple. You can be a quitter or you can be a fighter and, and that's the, the choice you have to make. And, um, you know, that, that event that shaped my future in a lot of ways. And then the world cup happened very shortly thereafter. And, you know, just something inside me was just said, I want to do that. I want, I want to pull, pull that Jersey on and I want to play in a world cup. Um, you know, and, and long story short, I was very, very fortunate to, uh, to reach the international level and to, to play for my country and to captain my country. But uh, to this day, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure every day for the rest of my life, uh, I'm going to regret the fact that I never actually managed to help Canada qualify to reach another World Cup. I had three cracks at it, uh, and I failed all, all, all three times. And uh, that, you know, that, that is part of the reason why I'm sitting here today. <laughs> Um, because getting to, to, to that level was, was not easy in our country. Um, the system that we have in place is broken. It, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked for many, many years, maybe going back to even when I was a kid. Um, and we have to change. And I found myself at the end of my playing career, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to go over to Europe um, started out at Darlington in the third division, um, and, and, you know, got my eyes opened as to what football was really like, uh, in, in the rest of the world. Um, and I was fortunate to progress on from there. I, I went to Dundee United, had three years there, I had three years at Wigan Athletic, and then the final four years of my career I spent with Ipswich Town. Um, and if you'd have told me all those years before at the age of 12, that that would have been the, the, the career path I would have taken, I would have laughed in your face <laughs> because I, I still can't believe sometimes when I think back on how it actually happened, but you know, it was all sort of, it all sort of stemmed from that initial failure I had as a 12 year old, but I, I never wanted to feel like that again. So, you know, I, all the work that I put in all the, the hours and, and commitment and, 
you know, some of the guests you've had on your podcast, they all tell very similar stories. It's, it's not, it's not down to any sort of gifted ability. More often than not, it's down to just hard work and stubbornness just won't take no for an answer. Um, and that certainly applies in my case. I wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, but I got to that point at the end of my career, I transitioned to a role in the media, I started working here in Canada as a football pundit um, for uh, CBC, which is the Canadian equivalent of BBC. Uh, and then I transitioned over to TSN, which is the Canadian equivalent of Sky Sports. And I worked uh, in the media for about eight years, but I, I got to a point where I started feeling really um, unsatisfied with my own contribution to the game in this country. And I felt like I was saying the same things on television over and over and over again, and nothing was changing. And I had a, a, a friend of mine that I played hockey with, actually, who was a doctor who had said to me a few years back, he was asking how things were going in soccer and you know why Canada was struggling so much and I was telling him about the work I was doing in the media and, and how I was trying to you know, shine a light on some of the problems that we face in, in this country in grassroots soccer and coach education. And uh, he gave me some advice, which I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, the medical profession um, works in a similar way, but he said, I'll explain how it works. You know, if I go to a conference and I, I present, you know, my, my treatment plan for a specific disease or a specific ailment, um, every single one of the doctors that's in the auditorium that's watching the presentation will be saying to themselves, that's nice. I'm smart. I'm a doctor. I'm smarter than him. I'm going to keep doing my own way. <laughs> uh, but he, and he said, that's, that's the reality. You know, we, we all have ego. We all think we have all the answers. Um, but he said, the difference is in the medical community, if I go and I, in that same conference and I present a clinical study and research that I've done and I present facts and evidence that supports the treatment plan that I put in place, the doctors are still going to say the same thing, that they're smart and they know things and, and, and they're probably smarter than I am. But they're going to look at that and they're going to say that that works. And if it works, then they're going to try it because ultimately they're trying to do the right thing. And he said, what you need to do is you need to try and find a way to do the same thing. You need to be able to prove that it can actually work. And there is a better way to do it. You've got to show people that it can be done. So, you know, that kind of stimulated my thinking a little bit to, to um, try and search for an opportunity to, to take on a role where you could put this, you know, theory into practice, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, this role came up, the director of development role with Canada Soccer, focused very much on grassroots, uh, focused very much on coach education. And I remember when the job posting came up, I went home and said to my wife, look, if I don't, if I don't try to get this job and I don't try to do this, I don't think I'll ever be able to talk about Canadian soccer on TV again because I'll be a fraud. Uh, and I don't want to feel like that. So I'm swinging for the fences in a lot of ways, Stuart. <laughs> uh, I've had countless people in Canadian soccer uh, say to me, um, good luck, you know, good, good luck to you trying to, trying to fix this. But uh, at the same time, I, I've met so many people in the last 18 months uh, that have been on this job where I, I've been so encouraged by their work rate and their belief and, and their, um, selflessness that they can help build a better system um, and they want to be part of it and it's it's amazing you know a lot of your guests talk about this the whole concept of of team and, and what that means 
And I genuinely believe we, we've got a, a great team of people. And what we've really just lacked is, is something, not, not necessarily someone, but something, a vision, a mission statement, uh, an idea, a concept uh, of a brighter future to link them together to work towards. And, and that's really what our role is. I see my, my team, my staff, and, and everyone that we're working with across the country is to give people the belief that there can be a brighter future for the game in our country, that we're not all working away and toiling away in vain and, and, and just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So, um, you know, change is, change is an interesting one, though, because nobody likes change to be imposed on them. Um, and, and change is only ever really going to take effect if it comes from within. So that's, uh, that's the Coles Notes version of, of, of where we're at right now. Um, there's a lot more detail to, to, to talk about, but I don't want to bore you. So um, that's, that's, that's me in a, in a nutshell, I, I guess. I, th- I think what's really fascinating, uh, you mentioned it, that people have similar stories. And I'm always actually fascinated in these backstories. Um, and part of the reason for that is is it usually gives you a really good insight as to kind of what's the fuel that, that's fueling the fire yeah and why they've arrived in this situation why they're so passionate yeah. about what they do why they why where their energy comes from and it i mean it it's very it is very interesting how um you, what what i think is a huge driver clearly for you is two or three things really one is obviously to try and see um you know Canada get back to the level it was at when in, in the 88 Olympics and we remember the 88 sorry not Olympics they say World Cup and we remember the 88 World Cup in this country particularly well I think I think it's actually um, really brought home my uh, my love of um, morality and ethics in <laughs> at that particular but we won't talk about that in any more detail yeah, we won't go there <laughs> <laughs> but um we, uh, but interestingly, um, you know, clearly one of the things that was driven, you know, your sporting career um, had some scenarios where you faced adversity and overcoming adversity, tackling big, tackling challenges, not backing down from challenges. And in many ways, almost like you said, that stubbornness and grittiness to move forward is clearly a strong characteristic that your sports experience has developed in you. Clearly, your parental backgrounds developed in you. An awful lot of people wouldn't take this challenge on that you've taken on. So, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's it, clearly it's interesting how the two things connect together. Yeah, it's probably because most people are brighter than I am. But <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's funny, you know. We 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 have long, deep discussions about coach education in this country, and and you know, the more I learn, the more questions I have. And you know, we we talk about things like resiliency. How do we develop resiliency? Um, how do you create environments where that characteristic? will be developed but it's not something that is explicit it's not something that the coach can give the player it it has to be a journey that the player goes through and 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 deals with situations that require them to be resilient but the the challenge you have in in all of that is it is the system in which our players are developing right now is set up with the complete opposite in mind you know it's all about you know, entitlement. It's all about, you know, I'm going to pick the best players to put them on a team together so I can go beat the next club's best players so that I can feel good about myself as a coach. And, 
you know, we have people that are out there actually recruiting young players to come and join their program because they're going to build a dynasty and win this tournament or that tournament and, and this championship or that championship as if that even matters. And they're never focusing on the journey that the individual player, the individual person is going to go through and, and, and what the learnings are of that journey. You know, so you look at, you look at all the national teams in, in, in football around the world, for example. You look at the number of players that play at the senior level. Very, very few of them, if any, were a star player throughout their journey as, as, a, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 14-year-old. There's not that many athletes that do that. Um, there was a study recently that was just published, I think it might have been uh, Nick Levitt that put it out there, about track and field athletes in, in uh, the highest level, how they weren't star track and field athletes when they were kids, um, less than 10%, which, you know, sort of underlines that, you know, whole concept of the journey is what produces the outcome, which is the player at the end of it. And not to race ahead and get ahead of ourselves thinking that, you know, if you're on the best team at the age of 10, that means you're going to be the best team at the age of 20. It, it just doesn't work that way. And I'm still wrestling with how to communicate that in a very clear and concise way because I think, um, I think every person that's involved in grassroots sport in, in this country, and I'm sure it's the same around the world, I think they, most of them, I mean, there, there will be exceptions, I'm sure, but I think most of them genuinely do it because they want to help the kids get better. And they want to create an environment for the kids to fulfill their dreams. But I think we've never really communicated the, the, the right way to do that. And it, it, it's partly down to the fact that we're measuring the wrong things. I mean, the only metric that we use right now in, in grassroots football to evaluate success is results. It's the only thing that we, we measure is, is who wins. And we need to start measuring different things because – Winning is a, is a byproduct of good development, but there's all kinds of ways, certainly in, in football, that you can take shortcuts to get results in youth football. Um, and, and countless people have, uh, have talked about this over the years. So, you know, I think for, from our perspective, we're looking at ways that we can change the metrics that we use to evaluate success in grassroots football, looking at things like uh, attraction, retention, progression and transition. So um, from our perspective, and this ties into some, some of the work that we're doing with, uh, with a club licensing program that we're, we're looking to implement, the attraction piece is really simple. How many kids are you bringing into the sport who have never played soccer before? Um, so they're new to the sport and year on year, you'll have an attraction number or ratio of your total registration to uh, your attraction uh, ratio of, of how many kids are new to the sport. So that's one piece. The second piece is, how many kids are new to your club and your organization? So they've played soccer somewhere else, but now they've joined your club. And that'll be an interesting metric because there are organizations who are very, um, very uh, bullish on recruiting players from other organizations. Um, if that second um, ratio of attraction is kind of off and it's a bit, a bit skewed, if it's, if it's a lot higher than the national average, that might mean one of two things. It might mean that they're, they're heavy recruiters, which we don't feel is a good thing, but it also might mean they're doing a really good job um, as a club and they're just attracting people to the club because they're doing really good work. 
So getting that data is really important for us to give the organization feedback on the programs that they're running. Uh, retention is pretty simple. I mean, you know, how many kids come back year on year to keep playing the game? And, and we want to keep, uh, to quote uh, our good friend Marco Sullivan, as many as possible, as long as possible, uh, in as good as environment as possible. So we want to keep kids involved in the game. Progression is really simple. How many players do your, does your club, your organization, promote to a higher level of the sport? And, and this is the one thing that I think we struggle with most in this country is getting clubs and coaches and even parents to understand that player development is an individual process. Even though this is, an, is a team sport and there is a, there is a component of team success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. That's in, in soccer, but at the grassroots level for certain, it is an individual process, player development. And progressing a player out of your club to a higher level of the game, whether they go into a professional club academy, whether they go into a national youth team program, uh, maybe at the end of their, uh, their, their youth soccer days, they go on to play uh, soccer at the um, post-secondary level, at the university level. Um, that gives us a, a, an indication of how well your club is doing at progressing players to a higher level of the game. And then the final metric is transition, which is how many of your players are transitioning to another role within the sport, whether that is as a volunteer administrator, whether it's as a referee, whether it's as a coach. Uh, are you keeping kids engaged in football in your community? And, and, and are you developing good citizens, I think is a good way to put it. So, you know, these things are things that we're not currently measuring. And I think we need to start measuring these things because that's the essence of sport. It really is the essence of, of what a community community club is, is all about. It's about developing a community. You you um you might have already spotted this, but I'm really, really and maybe it's the marketeer in me, but I'm really bad <laughs> at searching for acronyms. But you might have already <laughs> spotted that those three things add up to trap. Yeah. You're trying yeah. to trap as you're trying to trap as many in, in the sport as you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. <laughs> It might I, not I stick. I don't get involved in marketing. It's not my, <laughs> not my bailiwick. <laughs> um, 
Interestingly, I don't know whether it's also uh, whether this has also crossed your mind or it's been down some of the lines, but um, I'm sort of mixing day job with podcasting now. But um, the Sports England talent team uh, just about to publish their talent strategy, and one of our big focuses across all of our investment into sport is around diversity and inclusion. Yep. And so inclusion is one of we've got uh, two main stra- funding kind of priorities which is around progression obviously within talent but also inclusion because yep. yep. we obviously find that there's a uh, certainly in a lot of the sports that we're involved with there's a direct correlation with coming from a certain school and from a certain socioeconomic background and usually from a particular ethnic group and progression in sport and physical activity yeah so that ties into some of the work we're doing with the club licensing program so just to kind of explain what that is a little bit. Um, this process started many years ago. I, I would say probably about 10 years ago where we were, you know, Canada soccer was essentially trying to define what it means to be a club and, and what it means to be a, a soccer organization in this country. Because right now uh, it, it's, it's almost like the wild West <laughs> in, in a lot of ways there are no standards. So anyone who, who wants to you know, sell their wares, so to speak, uh, they're, they're able to do so. And there, there isn't really any quality assurance. So as a parent, as a consumer, I always ask parents, how do you choose which club to register your, your son or your daughter in? Like, how do you know who's good and who isn't good? And how do you know what you're signing up for? And more often than not, they say word of mouth. Um, so they hear from other parents, friends of theirs that have kids that are, that are playing the game. And it's, it's very much uh, based off of that. They don't really know what they're signing up for. They don't know if they're going to get qualified coaches, trained coaches. Uh, they don't know what the facilities are going to look like. Um, and, and sometimes it's very much trial and error. And I often think, why can't we be better than that? Like, would, would we send our kids to school not knowing if the teachers were trained, mm. not knowing if the facilities were, were acceptable from a you know, developmental standard for our children. We'd never t- tolerate that in education. And yet we do it in sport all the time. Mm. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to create um, profiles of different types of, of soccer organizations in this country. Um, and we came up with four distinct uh, levels, for lack of a better term. Um, ranging from your your 100% volunteer-based, small in size and stature uh, soccer organization um, to you know a, a, a large, um, well-staffed, professionally run and professionally managed um, soccer establishment, and even within those four levels, there's there's two different types of business models. One is a non-profit community-based club. The other is a private soccer entity. Um, in the Canadian soccer world for many years, in most of the country, the private industry has been kept on the outside, in, in large part because of the way that the governance structure uh, has been uh, in place in Canada for many years. But we're trying to change all that. I've long believed, right from... Uh, my time when I first came back to Canada as an ex-player, that there's no reason whatsoever for nonprofit community clubs and private soccer organizations to be in different streams. There's, there's no reason for that. They can easily coexist and they can work together. Uh, and one of the mottos that we use when we talk to people is that we want to work with people that want to work with us. 
So if you're a nonprofit community club, great. If you're a private soccer organization, great. If you want to work with us to try and grow and develop the game, then we want to work with you. So we've been trying to break down some of these barriers. And, and the entry-level point of, of the club licensing program is what we're calling it as a quality soccer program or a quality sport program. It revolves around five principles. The first principle is that it's safe. The second is that it's enjoyable. The third is that it's accessible and inclusive. The fourth is that it's developmentally appropriate, which means that the organization follows the principles and guidelines of long-term player development. They use age and stage appropriate game formats, uh, field sizes, balls, equipment, that sort of thing. Um, so we, we, we give the game back to the kids in so many respects. And then the fifth is that they, they, they follow the guidelines of membership because in our country, we are 10 provinces and three territories, and each of those provinces and territories has their own governing body that has certain conditions of membership. And it's different in every province and territory. So um, when I talk to Europeans, I always kind of say, imagine taking all of Europe and trying to do the same thing in every country. It's not easy to do that. <laughs> Because everyone's different. There's regional differences. So we have to ensure that the organizations, wherever they're based, are following along with the rules and regulations of their governing body in that region of the country. So those are the five things. And, and what we've said to everyone is there's absolutely no reason whatsoever that your organization, even if you only have 50 people and you have two teams, and that's all you have and you're all volunteers, there's no reason why you can't be safe, enjoyable, accessible, and inclusive and developmentally appropriate and meet the conditions of membership. It's, it's that simple. So it was really uh, a process of trying to make sure that every single individual and organization that is involved in soccer in our country is part of the club licensing program. You, you, um, you made me think about some, um, I spent quite a long time in my career working in the golf industry, mm -hmm. um, looking at uh, developmental opportunities for young, young people to get in golf, particularly making the transition from, you know, almost giving them an introduction in schools and then translating them into, into the club environment and potentially looking to take up membership. And there's some very similar parallels there, because as you'll probably be aware, you know, I mean, you know, golf is a largely a commercial operation. You've got a combination, you've got private members clubs, you've got commercial operations, you know, you've got more kind of community focus, what you might call municipal council facilities that are very open access and a similar sort of process. But again, for a long, long time, the commercial sector, you know, was seen as, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of just out there. We're not really interested in them because they were a different profit motive. But the reality is um, that actually you can uh, be in business and, and still aligned to all these key principles. They're not at odds with each other. Yeah. Um, and I think the quicker sports organizations sort of cotton onto that, in many ways, it brings a significant advantage because what you then have is you have sustainability with sustain, you know, with sustainable investment streams. You know, there are lots of other great things that can happen. Facilities can be developed, all these different things. So, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But for a long time, almost this kind of mentality has been that, oh, we're only going to place investment in areas where there's, you know, kind of almost like a charitable motive. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um position because I think a lot of the um, a lot of the contradiction towards um, private soccer organizations is that they're they're actually a lot of people will call them for profit so mm. and, and the implication is that they're just trying to make money out of this and I, I know several um, private soccer organization owners personally 
and they're not driving around in Ferraris. <laughs> they're scratching a living. They're, they're just trying to get by. And, and many of them have created their organizations because they know there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to develop players in our country. And they felt many of them uh, restricted by a lot of the bureaucracy that was in place. So, you know, we're trying to break down that bureaucracy. And, and I've been really pleased with how it's been going in terms of having a dialogue and having a conversation. Um, because that's the starting point, you know, in, in, in any change, um, it's never about the, the governing body or the, the organization, or the entity that's sort of in charge, for lack of a better term, telling everyone what to do. You know, people would love it if it was mandated that you have to do this. But I'm not a big believer in forcing people to do things against their will, because you, you'll, you'll get in the short term sort of uh, malicious compliance. They'll go along with it, but they'll hate you for it. Mm. And they'll do everything in their power to undermine you and, and to undermine the process. And it's, it's never going to be lasting change. I'd much prefer to educate people as to why there's a better way to do things and how we can work together and how it's not going to be a threat to anybody. You know, that's a, a big piece of the, the change management process that we're going through right now is that we're trying to sort of assuage the fears that exist. You know, the, the sky is not falling. The whole world's not going to crumble. There's a better way for us to do this, and it, it revolves around us working together. I've said many times in, in Canada, the irony of our sport is that it revolves around teamwork, and yet no one in Canadian soccer wants to work together. Everyone wants to do their own thing and do it their own way. So you know, we, we all have to kind of come together and realize, look, there's a better way for us to do things. And if we focus on what if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's most important in all of this, which is the experience that our kids have playing the sport, I think we're going to go pretty close to, to where we need to go. But it's, it's not going to be easy to get there for sure. And uh, I think you're absolutely right, um, particularly in complex systems, as we often talk about in this, yeah. on this podcast, but also in, you know, fragmented uh, landscape of organizations with different agendas, different um, philosophical standpoints, et cetera, et cetera. Like you say, you're, you're argue, you know, to try within that scenario to, like you say, impose or regulate or on any of those things what you will get is uh is people gaming the system uh dave snowden talks about this you know the the, the complexity theorist and he talks about he's got a great youtube video that if i can dig out i'll try and share um which is about how you would how you would try and run a kid's party <laughs> and he uses the metaphor and he says what we so if you're trying to run a kid's party and then you see what you need is a gantt chart to map out when you're going to be doing the cake when you're going to be doing the jelly when you're going to be doing the part this that and the other and then what we'll then do is we'll create boundaries within which the children can't step over and if they do step over there'll be sanctions in place and he goes on and on and on and on yeah and, says, and then you've got the alternative where you actually you actually get a set of agreed what he calls heuristics which is basically almost like galvanizing principles that people can get behind and they can they can actually 
champion on your behalf. Yeah. And then that becomes a movement and that becomes very powerful. It takes an awful lot longer and it's, um, it, it feels sometimes like it's a little bit glacial in its pace, but it's way more powerful in terms of its long-term implications. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Um, one of the ones that I will often tell when I'm doing presentations is, you know, talking about all of these changes that we, we need to implement. So things like um, taking away early selection based on perceived ability. So the, the, the generally accepted um, research says that s- selecting players prior to physical maturation is it, it, it's like, you know, finding a needle in a haystack. Um, it's, it's pretty much well accepted now that it's, it's pointless to try and do that because the best 10 year old is not the best 12 year old. Who's not the best 16 year old, who's not the best 20 year old. Uh, it's nonlinear um, to use some of the terminology from coach education. Player development is nonlinear. So why is our system set up for uh, a linear approach? It, it just doesn't make sense. And what I always say is if we're going to change and we're going to, we're going to do something different, there's all kinds of examples for us to look to, to see how it works. And I, I always use school as an example. It's been many, many years for me <laughs> and, uh, since I was in elementary school. But if you think back to your elementary school days, when the, when the bell goes for recess and you get let outside to do some physical activity, what generally happens? Like what, what, what usually happens when the kids you know, pour out of the school and they go into the schoolyard and they get to play? What do they do? Um, usually, um, trying to think about that now, I can't remember, like you say, it's a long time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they get together in groups and then start working out what they're going to do. Yeah. So they figure out they're going to do something, right? So let's play something of some kind. And I know that schools have changed over the years and you're not allowed to bring balls to school anymore. But back when I was a kid, you could bring, bring a ball and, and bring <laughs> a tennis, tennis ball or a football or, or basketball or whatever. So we play some kind of a sport. So what the kids do is they divide themselves up into teams and they play a sport. And one of the things that we played in Canada when I was a kid, it was called foot hockey, which yeah. was basically uh, the precursor to five-a-side football, where yeah. you would divide up into teams and we'd use a tennis ball. We'd put down, you know, jumpers for goalposts and you'd play a little game and, and, and you'd play. And we'd play year-round, even in the winter. Um, we'd, we'd play on the snow. Um, and when those games were going on, if one team was hammering the other team, what did the kids do? They made it fairer. Yeah, they changed teams, right? They swap players, so they balance it out. So there's no adult that is there telling the kids what to do. There's no teacher that's, that's monitoring the schoolyard that is saying, well, I'm sorry, but you're not talented enough to play with that group because we can only put the talented ones together because that's how, that's how we develop players. Um, they don't do that. And the kids keep score and they have fun and they love it. And, and when they win, they get to brag about it to their classmates until the next recess. But then the next recess comes along and what do they do? They go out and they go out and they either have a rematch. So they want to have the same team so they can see if they can beat the other team and, and get one over on them or they will change the teams up again. But they fit, the kids have figured out how to compete against each other. They love to compete. They enjoy doing that. But they've also figured out, and, and this is where I think adults need to learn from children, they've figured out how to create a competitive environment without having fixed teams and fixed rosters. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there, there's no, there's no group of kids that are saying, well, sorry, these are the, these are the guys that I'm playing with every recess for the entire school year, because it's really important that we win more games than you do over the course of the year so that we can get a $5 trophy at the end of it. You know, <laughs> what they figured out is the, the immediate return, which is I want to play. I want to have fun with my friends and I want to be competitive. And if it's not competitive, we will figure out a way to make it competitive. So, you know, in, 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 in any sport, in, in, in an elementary school, you get kids who are really advanced in relation to their peers. And if one of those kids or two of those kids or three of those kids are playing in a game with lesser skilled players, what the kids will actually do is they'll unbalance the teams to give one group, the lesser group, an advantage because they'll have more numbers. They'll, it'll be more difficult. So you're creating the environment. Um, and, and to use the, the term that I know you guys like, love to use, the affordances for the opportunities for action for both sets of players. So the lesser skilled players have more players so they can condense the field and they can make it more difficult for goals to be conceded. And it's a challenge for the more talented players because they've now got to work out well, how can we get through eight players when we've only got four? Mm-hmm. So I always say that the kids have actually figured it out and we, the adults, are getting in their way. So mm-hmm. how can we change our system to get out of their way more and let the kids take back ownership of the game? It's one of the reasons why um, I was talking about this again with, with James last week, but also talking about, you know, in, I've been talking about for quite a while is so much talent development stems from the backyard. Yeah. Because the backyard is the place where, um, like you say, um, you know these these kind of skillful games are devised. Uh, I always tell a story about we used to play um, myself and my brother used to play um, cricket in the backyard, and it, it was boring if somebody was batting for too long. You know, yeah. so you make it really hard. You know, <laughs> so you bat, you play with a thinner bat, uh, uh, and that you know really you know focuses your eye, and you play with a smaller ball and all this sort of stuff. So there's lots of turnover and lots of people getting out and giving the chance to have a go and all that sort of stuff. And so, so you're deliberately manipulating the game form in order to a get more participation, B make it more challenging. And then if you can stay in, it's even better for you. And this was just a sort of a fundamental basic. And so that you, one thing you've, you've alluded to there, it's not necessarily just about a fixed roster. It's also the fixed, uh, the not having a fixed format. Yeah. So flexing yeah. the format all the time as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's about, conditioning the game i mean i get this question all the time when we're when we're talking to clubs and organizations here about some of the changes that we're proposing like going away from fixed rosters and going to pools of players Mm -hmm. and giving kids an opportunity to play with their friends as opposed to playing with uh like-minded or like ability uh, uh, players, you know, when, when, when a kid's 10 years old, I don't even really consider them an athlete. They're just a kid, they're a child mm-hmm. and they're, they they want to play with their mates and play with their friends. And one of the questions I always get is, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you work with a group of players that are really diverse in ability? And I said, and that, that's the skill of coaching. That's the skill of being a really good grassroots coach is that you can challenge the individual within the team context. So yeah. you could be doing an activity say it's a, it's a possession game or it's a directional possession. And you could say to the player who's really advanced, you know what, I want, I want to see if you can do this with, with only two touches, you know, and we'll, so we'll condition the game just for that individual. 
So now you're creating a challenge within the game for the, 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 the so-called talented athlete, yeah. uh, the talented child. So that keeps them in the environment where they really want to be because that's the thing that kids want most is they want to be with their friends. They want to be with their peers. They want to be with their mates. Uh, and that's one of the big components of fun for them. I had a, a, a coach um, from many years ago when I was just, just starting out as a professional who was a mentor of mine and I talked to him all the time and he said to me, he posed a really fascinating question because one of the things that we've always struggled with in this country is, is developing the creative type player. Mm. Uh, and I know that, 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 you know, many people lament England's inability to develop, you know, world-class creative players, but I'd, I'd argue that you're significantly further ahead in that game than we are. But one of the reasons that we don't, you know, develop creative players is because our system doesn't encourage creativity. And he said to me, which was really fascinating because I never thought about it this way. He said, what happens in Canada when a child is really talented and is a prodigy or is, it, is well advanced from their peers and they're, they're you know, the, the best 12-year-old player in the country? What do we do with that player? And traditionally, what we always do is we play them up a year. And he says, okay, but when do we stop playing them up a year? What if they're the best 13-year-old when they're, when they're 12? What if they're the best 14-year-old when they're 12? Where, where do we stop? I said, well, well, we stop when they're no longer the best player. He said, exactly. So then what happens to that player when they're in that environment? Let's say they're playing two years up. They're playing with the under-14s and they're 12 years old. They are physically outmatched. They're not as fast or as strong as the, as the players that they're playing with and against. So what ends up happening to their creativity? When they get the ball, they don't tend to be creative. They tend to give the ball away to a teammate as quickly as possible. So they play whatever is on. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, and what the simplest option is. They no longer have the advantage they used to have. And over a period of time, we take away their ability and their opportunity to be creative. And he said, what we should be doing is we should be giving the child that experience, that exposure to push them out of their comfort zone for a little bit, but then have them go back to where they're, they're, they're comfortable and creative, where they can have that experience of scoring five goals at will and, and dribbling through a team. Because if we don't do that, we're actually stripping away the opportunity from our young players to be creative. And we wonder why we're not developing creative players. But we can't do that because our system doesn't allow it. The rules don't allow you to play up and down and, and with your own age group and with, a, with a, an older age group because we've been so fixated on, on putting this adult competition model in place, which is 
pick the best players, put them on a team together and try and go and smash the next club's best players and crown a champion at the end of the year. That's an adult competition model that works great for adults. I mean, it's provided us with some great excitement over the years in, in watching professional sport, but that's not really what kids need and it's really not what they want either. So, you know, trying to change the mindset of let's stop doing what the adults want and let's start creating more environments that the kids want will probably keep more kids engaged in the game for a longer period of time. It's interesting. There's a couple of things there. Um, you talked earlier about regulation and how, um, you know, you, you want to bring people with you because they're bought into the philosophy as opposed to uh, regulating. I tweeted something this morning from English Rugby. Um, they put out a new thing around their age grade competition framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working on that project when I was working there for a while. And um, we used some of the research from Amanda Visek on fun integration theory, uh, fun integration yeah. theory and all that sort of stuff as a reference point. But they were talking about, um, they were providing, they're providing some guidance about um, playing, playing time. This was particularly in particularly relevant to and uh the playing time stuff was around you know having each each player getting at least half a game which to me is like that's just a right you know that's just yeah. a basic but but apparently we've got to have some documentation that tells us that might be a good idea <laughs> what it actually says is a really great line is saying that you know we hope that we don't have to regulate this because people will just do the right thing and i was like and they've just done a survey and about 80 percent, 81 percent of people are pretty much on board but there's still that 19 you know what they call those i call them the ultra competitive what do they call them the um uh, the win at all costs ultras who um yeah. who are going to hang on but the reason i'm saying that is is that um previously they, they also had some additional regulation so they had a lot of um players in rugby playing up and a lot of it was to do with or it became clear that it was through some pushy parents who saw their child as being the next sort of international superstar and wanted them to play up an age group to get more challenge etc etc so they regulated it out and said you can't you've got to stay in your got to stay in your age group but it had some unintended consequences the unintended consequences is you get these absolute physical freaks playing in the wrong age group trampling over all these other kids and it's no good for the little kids. It's no good for the big kids. You know, no one's really getting a good experience out of it. So by regulation, taking this, oh, well, we no longer can do it. What it took away was some of the common sense of, actually, this is just a good idea for this individual. And I've got a very live example with the groups I'm coaching right now. I've got two, two, two nine-year-olds who need to blow up a year. And... Um, Oh, sorry, don't, don't need to. They could play up a year. They're ready to. They've been uh, experienced of the sport for quite a long time and they know exactly what, and they've got the capability. One of them really, really wants to and is there. And the other one says, I want to stay with my friends. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. Not a problem. There's no rush. Yeah. That's fine. If, if you want to come and play, come and play. You don't even have to train with us if you don't want to. It's up to you. Just your, comp- your, complete, your complete choice because we're not in a, big, in, in a big rush. But what's interesting is, is I think that could easily get regulated out. And actually, and I know, I know it's, it's, that's a common sense decision and not everybody makes common sense decisions and therefore you need regulation in order to enforce common sense. But for me, I still instinctively, I probably like you, feel that it's educa- education is better than regulation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think you're always going to have that ultra, you know, whether it's a parent or a coach. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a player, but rarely. I mean, it's not, I mean, certainly not uh, with the younger kids. The kids just want to play. They just want to have fun. They're not really bothered what team they're on. They just want to be with their mates. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, that other sports are, are challenged by this as well. Um, we're, we're actually doing a, a study right now with one of the master's students from Queen's University, uh, one of Jean Cote's students. Okay. 
uh, Daniel Goldman, who's who's uh, working with us. He's a massive soccer fan, which is brilliant because he's uh, he's right into it. But we're doing a, a study. He's doing his master's thesis on this on uh, coach, athlete, and parent perceptions of playing up in youth soccer. So uh-huh. trying to get uh, a better sense of, of what the perception is and what the perceived benefits are. And then perhaps also, hopefully the data will, will support this, um, where we can actually start getting some conclusions about, well, does it actually help or does it hinder or does it have a neutral effect? We, you know, we don't know. So um, we know it's prevalent. We know it happens uh, a fair amount. It's usually used as a reward of some kind or an incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes used as a recruitment tool mm-hmm. to say, well, you can come play for us. We'll play you up a year because that's better. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't think most people, coaches, parents, and certainly athletes, uh, really understand the ramifications of that. You know, you look at, uh, you know, you look at a developing youngster. The, the difference that you can have in the social emotional aspect of a, a late maturing child, boy or girl, going up a year because they're a talented athlete, and being surrounded by early maturing athletes who are socially and emotionally in another world. You know, it's, it's a, it's a huge shift, especially through those, those key developmental years. So, you know, we're trying to get answers on, on a lot of this stuff because, because we're faced with a lot of the same questions too. And I don't, I don't have answers for that, that stuff right now. Well, I think it's not going to be be before long. Um, and you heard it here first, so I'm going to put this out as a piece of copyright, um, in case there's anybody out there, but, um, we looked at this when I was working again in rugby um, and thinking, well, surely it's not beyond our capabilities now, given technology and what we understand about human development, et cetera, et cetera, for us to be able to move across, move beyond age as a means by which to um, create a competitive environment for young yeah. people. So yeah. first and foremost, if you haven't got formal adult competition rules, um, you can be way more flexible anyway. But mm-hmm. how can we move beyond age? And I know we've looked at things like biobanding and all those sorts of stuff. And the jury's out and there's lots of people arguing for and against. I have to say, I think there's an awful lot of very interesting stuff in biobanding that we're really missing a trick by kind of not embracing. And I know the Premier yeah. League are doing some stuff on that. But let's just take biobanding as one variable. So if you could somehow have some kind of an algorithm, you know, app-based algorithm, whatever it is, where you could do kind of an assessment on a player based on their training age, their physical maturation, their strength, power, height, uh, their emotional and psychological readiness, and you could profile them accordingly and then group kids to play together based on that. It'd be a really interesting competitive environment, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're doing some work with uh, Adam Baxter-Jones from the University of Saskatchewan, who's uh, um, heavily involved, one of the pioneers in biobanding. And some of the information that, that he shared with us is fascinating on, on how do you do this. And, and you're right, it absolutely revolves around taking away regulations and allowing for more flexibility. Mm-hmm. But it, it really revolves around education and, and educating coaches and parents because every parent that I've ever met, and I'm pretty sure that they're, they're very similar around the world, every parent that I've ever met, every sport parent, they want the same thing. They want the best for their child. That's, that's all they want. They want their child to have the best opportunity. But unfortunately, our system doesn't clearly illustrate what that is. Mm. And we, we've not done a good enough job of, of educating parents of what that developmental journey is like for their child. Mm. Um, but we're trying to, to take steps to educate parents, educate coaches, educate organizations that there is a better way to do this. 
And it, it probably revolves around allowing the organizations to have more flexibility in how they group players together. Yeah. You know, I, I always ask questions like, who, who came up with the idea that we have to group players based on birth year? Why do we have to do that? We know from the academic research that there can be several years of difference in terms of the maturation of the child that's developing, regardless of their age. Mm-hmm. So why would we put two 12-year-olds together when they're maybe four years apart in their developmental age? So we have to be more flexible in, in so many ways. But you know, I, I think part of it ties into our coach education and our approach to coach education. You know, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you this question because I'm, I'm keen to get your thoughts on it. Um, I, I've gone through coach education myself as a coach. I've done um, I, you know, licensing and workshops around, around the world. Why do we have everyone line up on a course <laughs> at the same starting point and then expect them seven days later to finish at the same finishing point? Is that the right approach to take with coach education? Because my experience, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on this, is that every single workshop that I've ever been to, everyone shows up and has different skill sets, different interests, different competencies, different personalities, different characteristics. And they're all at different points in their life as well. Some are recently retired high-performance professional players. Some are coming from the teaching community. Some are, are, are volunteers that just want to learn more. Everyone's got a different starting point. And yet we all say to them on day one, right, line up on the starting line. Is that the most efficient way to, to, to teach people? Uh, because I think there's a better way to do it. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So you've got me on my, uh, you got me on my hobby horse now. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> um, uh, look, I, 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 okay. I think it goes back, right. It goes back quite a long time. It goes back to a model of education, which has been developed. I read, a, I'm reading or just finished reading actually a really interesting book a guy called Todd Rose end of average. Yep. And in, in the book, he talks about this concept of average Aryanism, I think he calls it. And uh, it comes from a guy called Taylor who probably invented modern industrial production. Ford was based largely on Taylorist principles around maximum efficiency. Um, you know, take the human being out of the equation. It's about processes. It's about, you know, if this person don't have to think, all you have to do is literally treat the human as machine. Um, and, and then that was then, then a guy called Thorndike went on further from that and uh, built, our, built, built certainly most of Western education systems based on those principles. So how do we educate people to become largely compliant, uh, largely uh, able to uh, follow orders and follow process? And that the, the legacy of that education system, still you'll see it everywhere. It, it, it's all over the country all over uh, all over western western society capitalist society particularly um and it it permeates everything so it's based on this idea that it's almost like a sausage factory so our coach education system i'm talking about the uk because it's my main experience but most of them are pretty much modeled on standard standardized education systems and it's based on a standardized approach so we do almost exactly the same in education not quite and being slightly unfair but you know, basically all kids are given exactly the same education, regardless of their, um, 
you know their kind of abilities or whatever it might be or particular ex, you know talents or whatever it might be they're given a standardized system because it's basically so they can they can go into the meet you know become part of the means of production and it's the same in coaching we've got a minimum amount of time a contact time with the individuals there is content that we must educate them in it's not necessarily about what they can do it's education content how can we fit that content into the amount of time that's based on the availability of those individuals and how much they're likely to turn up for and it's usually the minimum requirement it's also based on a flawed idea that um, you're going to give everybody the information they want up front and you're going to give them everything they need ever as a coach. Never, you know, every piece of information they're possibly going to ever require, not yep. like going to solve a problem. And it's so that's that flawed idea. Um, and it is fundamentally just completely broken. We've actually just done a review of this entire education system. And it pretty much said to us that it's based on a, it's just based on a, found, a philosophical foundation that's completely, completely wrong. So I'm exactly with you that of those, of those, let's say, 12 candidates for that coaching course there's at least more often than not there's at least one that you could literally in five minutes go don't bother coming back you're good yeah and there'll be one who you're saying i never want to see you in coaching ever again (laughs) and the rest will all be just in a variation of that yeah i mean what, what i've experienced too is that they show up and they've had zero preparation so at their club or their academy wherever they're working they've done no work beforehand to get themselves ready for what's to come. So they show up and it's like they get, you know, 40,000 watt spotlight shone on them and they're like, Oh my God, I've got to get out of here. I I'm not comfortable. (laughs) It's the, the, uh, the analogy I always use, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. Mm -hmm. You, You get, you get absolutely soaked. And at the end of the week you come out of it and you've maybe taken in two drops of water because there's just not enough time. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going through our schedule. We're, we're delivering an A license at the end of June and I'm going through the schedule and we've got, you know, two hours for defending and, and then two hours on field for defending. And I'm, I'm looking at it and going, I can spend two months talking about defending. I'm never, ever going to be able to cover this in two hours. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. So this might interest you because I'm like you. I, I agree. I think it's based on the traditional model of education, which is, the teacher has the knowledge mm-hmm. and they're going to give it to the student mm-hmm. only when they say that the student is ready to receive it, which from my experience doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm a big believer that, that the whole learning process has to be a journey and it's going to take a different amount of time for yeah. each individual. Yeah. So saying that it's going to take seven days is just flat out wrong because it could take less than seven days for some people. It could take seven months for other people. So one of the things that we're doing right now as a pilot is uh, we've called it the, the, the coach mentorship program. And basically what it is, is it's, we're starting with the A license because it's, um, it's, it's more geared just from a, a scale and scope perspective towards those coaches who are, are very keen on professional learning and, 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 and higher level learning. So we're starting with the A license. And basically what we're doing is we're delivering it in a one-to-one format. So we've done away with the whole residential seven days drink from a fire hose. And we, we have a coach educator that works with us. Who's very experienced, uh, who was really keen on this approach um, and and really keen to take this on as a, as a pilot to see if he could do this. And basically what we've done is we've built all the modules for the a license because we know, we know what competencies the coach needs to have at the end of it 
for us to be able to say, yes, they're an A licensed level coach. But what I like about this is it actually gives the coach, him or herself, the flexibility to choose the direction that they go in. Yeah. And rather than us telling them, these are the things that we are going to teach you, we have a conversation with the coach to say, where do you want to go in your career? What is it that excites you? What do you want to learn about? What are you keen on? What are you passionate about? So there is an element of self-direction to it. Yeah. So the process starts with a, with a SWOT analysis. The, the candidate does a SWOT analysis of themselves. And, and I went through this process through the UEFA licensing um, uh, courses when I did the pro license. And it was fascinating for me because I'd never done that before. I'd never actually sat down and said, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Where are my opportunities for growth? And what are some of the things that could derail my plan or, or my career? So sitting down and actually reflecting on that was really important. So from there, I was able to kind of go, okay, these are the things that I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm excited about. So we have the candidate do that. Then the next piece is we say to them, look, you're going to have to document this whole journey. So it starts with, you know, your goal, your dream, your vision. What do you want to be? Do you want to be the manager of Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool, Juventus, wherever, Canada's men's or women's national team? Okay, let's, let's try and reverse engineer that. How do we get you there? What are the things that you don't currently have enough knowledge in? And it's been fascinating because the handful of candidates that we've gone through this with have revealed so many things that the traditional model of coach education completely doesn't deal with. Yeah. So things like, how do, I, how do I convince an owner that I'm the right person for the job? I've never had an interview before. You know, most pro footballers, they come out of the game, they've never had an interview before. They've never had to go into a boardroom and do a presentation. Um, presentation skills is, is a great one. I mean, coaches have to present information every single day to their players, but they've never had any training on how to do it properly, how to do it well. Um, these are huge aspects of, of, of the game. Dealing with agents. You know, if you're going to work at a, at a professional level and you're going to be a manager, you need to understand how the world of agents work. And, and what the whole global football ecosystem looks like. Um, things like psychology, periodization, uh, individual personal skills of, of management. Um, we're, we've been working a lot with Jean Cote at Queen's University on the transformational coaching concept that, that one of his PhD students, Dr. Jennifer Turnage, developed, which I think is an absolutely crucial aspect of coaching, which is the, the four eyes of, of uh, idealized influence, uh, intellectual stimulation, individual con consideration, and inspirational motivation. Um, and when you when you go back and you you look at those things and you you think about what is good coaching, those are the four things that it really revolves around. So giving giving the coach the opportunity to have some say in their own learning, I think is a really important piece because then it becomes meaningful, then it becomes relevant, then it becomes your own. While at the same time, it allows us to ensure that we, we get that person to the point of competency that they need in order to feel they got value out of the experience. So I've, I've just never, you know, having gone through the process myself, it's great going on a residential course because you're surrounded by like-minded individuals. You're, you're with other football people and you get to talk shop for seven days. And that's great. 
but I just feel like there's a there's something that's missing, and it's that individualization piece that 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 just isn't there on a residential course. Yeah, I mean, for me, if there was a place for this residential course, it would be really to do everything that you've just done, which is to identify what the learning journey for each individual is likely to be. And again, you know, we know that it's not necessarily going to follow the follow a natural and straight line path. But at the very least, what you can do is come out with a kind of trajectory or an objective or at least a direction to start with, because sometimes, sometimes people don't, ne- don't even necessarily know, but they at least know what they don't know. And then therefore they can begin to explore what they don't know. Yeah. They call it they call it a spiral curriculum because um, it's this idea instead of saying I'm going to go from A to B I'm just going to basically be where I am and I'm just going to continue to grow and get better and better in what I'm doing and then that might take me to other places and it might take me into other contexts. Your point that you make about um, what they say they need and what they say that they want from their education and learning is a brilliant example of what of what we just talked about because when we think we know. We know how we not we know how they need to act and we know the behaviors um, and we know the sorts of things that they ought to be able to well the, the way the athlete should be able to benefit from them you know in terms of outcome we know all that but traditionally a lot of sports coach education has been largely driven by the idea that there are certain core techniques of the game certain tactical principles and they must learn them they must learn those tactical principles because if we get everybody to do the same techniques and we get everybody to do the same tactical principles we'll create standardization and we'll get a standardized output and that's exactly <laughs> what we want isn't it standardized players that can follow orders ah turns out <laughs> maybe we don't we want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, (laughs) which is why often often the great players emerge outside of these kind of so-called talent systems better described as workhouses or factories in my opinion yeah i i think you know we we talk about this a lot with my staff and i always say to them i don't want our coach education system to create robots. I want our coach education system to... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Create independent thinkers hmm. who can challenge the conventional way of doing things and come up with something original. Hmm. And the only, the only way that we can do that is if we stop force feeding people the same content. Um, the challenge that we have, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you have it as well, is how do you do it when you've got, let's say you, you have a hundred A licensed candidates that want to be mentored. How do you do that? How, how is one person or two people going to be able to, to manage that workload? Can they manage that kind of a workload? Um, we've started using things like this video technology to have meetings and, and to have discussions with people. And it, it makes a very big country a lot smaller 
Yeah. But I, I suspect that what we'll find through this process is that the ideal is almost a blend of the two where there is some in-person contact and there's some video contact. There's some distance learning that's done. There's some element of, of individualization where the, the learner can, can you know, inquire about um, specific modules that they'd like more information on. It's a, I think a, a, it's a little bit like doing, I suppose, an undergrad uh, degree where you get to sample a whole bunch of different things to see what you're really fascinated by. And then you can choose what your major is going to be. So, you know, maybe in time it'll evolve to a point where we have a, a library and a catalog of modules and we can say these are the base competencies that we need to take you through to, to ensure that you get this information. But then you're going to have a say in, in the other areas that you want to explore. And, and our goal is to help you get there. Yeah. The, so, I've got, so, a, I've got a, fr a friend of mine, Andrew Gillett, who – He's very overdue on coming on this podcast. Um, he's a he's a slippery sucker. <laughs> Can't quite nail him down, but he's uh, he's done quite a bit of. Um, he works within our English Institute of Sport. He's a, a coach development, and I describe him as a bit of a coach development genius. He he does private work with um, Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, um, and he worked for Sports England for a while as coach development manager, and almost using the exact same model you've described mentored 40 coaches across 12 different sports i think it was 12 might have been more mm -hmm. but using a combination of some taught stuff so here's some new knowledge for you to consider um then the opportunity for those individuals to reflect in a community of practice again mostly done online um there's the one-to-one -one observation and professional discussion that happens after that one-to-one -one observation and professional discussion. There's also the use of video, videoed sessions, and then either through the community critiquing the activity with the individual or the one-to-one -one mentor critiquing the activity and asking questions and all those sorts of things, uh, combined with individual research and the sharing of that individual research. Um, yeah, and he's actually kind of profiled and modeled and almost i don't think it's quite a manual but it gives you kind of almost like a roadmap of how to do that um mm -hmm. I'll, ha I'll happily dig that out for you if, if i can find it and, and share it with you because i think it's a he basically it was like a two-year pilot study to see whether this was feasible using technology you know because we also are working across different sports and you've got some of the coaches who are away in competition in other sides of the world and it's can mm -hmm. we keep, can we keep the flow of information and the learning opportunities going yeah i mean i think that's one of the that's one of the big um, learnings that I had of going through the whole process myself is that as soon as you finish the workshop or the, the, the residential component, mm. there is little, if any, contact with anybody. Mm. You, you know, you're almost, you, you get to drink from the fire hose for seven days and then you're off on your own devices yep. and you don't really have any other contact points with anyone. So, you know, I, I think we have to try and change that. What do you think, um, what do you think is stopping sport in general from implementing this kind of an approach? Two things, um, culturally resilient beliefs, um, i.e. this idea of the way, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some people who are steadfastly committed to the idea of that the, our current coach education system is absolutely the best way to do it. Mm. Um, and don't get me wrong, when you've got an education system that looks pretty similar, you can understand why people would be pretty wedded to that model. Um, but, uh, so that's that's one. Um, the other aspect as well is that it's always been done like this. Um, and 
it's very difficult sometimes for people to conceive of an alternative when it's when this is the way it's always been done there's also an element i think as well of um it's too hard or <laughs> it's even it's too big an elephant to eat so you've just got you've got you know it's like oh we've got how do we even start and you, you you know you've rightly pointed out you know well we need a new workforce of mentors where do they come from what sort of skill set do they need you know it's a different role than just somebody standing in front with a powerpoint and saying here's the info now see you in see you in four months or something like that so it's it's a lot of a lot of those things that make people think i think a lot of people instinctively know that what they've got isn't quite right but they can't quite conceive of either the how they're going to get to the alternative context or it just they look at it and go that's impossible because it's going to take too much money. It's going to take too much human resource. It's going to take too long. We're not going to get people through the doors. We're not going to get our, you know, because I imagine probably similar to you, the incentives are based on, oh, the coach education team, we've done 3,000 courses and we've got 7,000 candidates and we've got a success rate of 90%. That's kind of the metrics they're using to measure success, aren't they? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I do think it's, and, and that, that expression, well, we've always done it this way, is I think it's the most dangerous expression in the world because it stifles innovation, it stifles creativity. And, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting yeah. different results. And, and if we are going to make a shift in coach education, and, and I've talked to technical directors around the world, and every single one that I've spoken to who has had success at the international level, at growing their, their base of players at the grassroots level, to, to a man and woman, they all say the same thing. It revolves around coach education. Once you get the coach education piece running properly, mm. you're going to see a huge shift in the growth and development of the sport. So it's, it's priority one, two, and three for me to try and get this right. And it's, it's, it is a challenge because when you start thinking about the how it's not so much the what or the why because i think we understand the why uh, we want to develop better coaches who can go out and create great environments for kids to enjoy the game um, and even the what we we know what the what is we want to be able to give them an individualized bespoke education that meets their needs and isn't what we tell them they need to know but it, it comes down to the how how do we actually do this how, how can we do this effectively and efficiently so that we're not wasting resources or, or we're not burning people out. Is this one of the other pieces I'm very conscious of is that we have a very small pool of, of mentor coaches in this country right now, and that needs to change. We need to, uh, we need to grow a, a wider base of people who are, are, are believing in mentoring coaches as a, as a means of education. Um, and that's another thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on too. I've always found, um, this, this belief, whether and whether this is accurate or not, or, or, or not, I don't know. But this belief that to be involved in coach education, you have to be old and you have to be experienced. Um, <laughs> and and I, I look at that and I, I kind of think, well, is that really the way forward? And, and do you really need to have two decades of coaching experience? Because we're, we're at a point in time right now where the, the, the generation that's sort of in their early fifties, I would say is the generation that saw the whole technology change happen before their eyes when they were adults, when they were working adults. So you've gone from, you know, a point where nobody had a cell phone to now everyone's got more computing power in their hand than, than the computers that put a, a, you know, a rocket ship on the moon. Um, so now you, now you've got that sort of imbalance. You've got the old, you know, sage on the stage type approach 
but then you've got the younger generation of coaches coming up that's grown up with technology. So who's better to teach about where the game is going to go than the younger generation that's actually embraced technology their whole life? Do you really want someone from an older generation to teach about, you know, the innovations around technology in the sport? They're probably not the best person to do that. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I guess like, like anything, it's, um, it probably there's no hard and fast rules in the sense yeah. that it depends. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in, in some respects, because, um, I think, uh, each individual brings to their kind of coach development experience, different things, and they have different, um, learning. I mean, I think I, I, I first and foremost, the starting point is I don't think experience should be, uh, as big of a criteria for being a coach developer as it is hmm. um, because you could have 20 years of experience of being awful. It's worth nothing. <laughs> it's you one know? year of experience repeated 20 times. Uh, exactly. Um, uh, and often as well, like you quite rightly point out um, that experience can be quite narrow, quite myopic. Um, it also can be, um, you know, it depends, you know, it depends on the individual. So the one thing I find about, um, younger coaches nowadays is um so, but this will seem like a strange analogy but it kind of is similar so back in the day in the world of um in the world of in the, in the world of poker players by all accounts you know to play to become a really great poker player you had to spend an awful lot of time playing a lot of hands and of course took a long time well nowadays when they play internet poker you know they play a lot of hands instantaneously sometimes playing multiple tables so they can actually gain the same amount of experience far quicker mm-hmm now, I don't think it's necessarily the same in coaching because you can only do the same amount of sessions, but what you have got available to you is more information and more opportunities to learn and more opportunities to engage with other people through the medium of digital technology than you've ever had before. It fascinates me when I mentor young coaches when they say to me things like, oh, can you send me an article on this? Or can you, can you, can you, can you send me a link to this book or whatever it is? And I just go, No. <laughs> I I didn't have any of this, <laughs> and I had to dig it out and go to the light and all that sort of stuff. It's on. It's in, at your finger, literally at your fingertips. Just yeah. do a little search and find it. Yeah. So my point being is, I do think that um, people can improve and learn and try ex- and experience things far quicker. I definitely had what I call a wilderness years. Right, fifteen years, no support level three qualification, went out there, was absolutely diabolical for about 10 years. (laughs) But I was trying stuff out. I was trying to find my way. You know, I had no one to talk to, no one to bounce ideas off. And then all of a sudden, the mobile phone and internet starts coming about. And I start going, oh, that's how it should have been done. (laughs) (laughs) And then I start writing letters to people apologizing for how I've coached them for the previous decade. (laughs) But my point being is, is that, so... My, so the point being is, is I, I do think there is a something in experience because I do think it's useful to be able to like I, I quite often when I'm mentoring, I quite often say it's not like about me. I'll just say what I found that other people have found useful or or I sometimes might say I had a similar experience once. And here's one of the things that I tried. Would that be the sort of thing that would work for you once yeah. they've identified this as a problem? So sometimes having that kind of track record and some experiences is useful in a conversation. But I don't think it's essential. 
Well, I mean, I, I think it's invaluable to have experience for sure, um, because, uh, you know, a wider breadth of knowledge is generally a result of that. But, um, you know, my experience, and certainly in this country, is that a lot of the really progressive, forward-thinking coaches are of a younger generation, and, yeah. and they're really inquisitive. And, and one of the things that I, I, I like to do with, with them when they pose questions is just flip it around and go, well, what do you think? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? You tell me. And then see where it takes you. And, and, you know, I always find the best facilitators, the best coach developers that I've worked with are the ones that, uh, and again, to use an analogy, I, I, um, I consider them like the bumpers in a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. You know, like the kid throws the ball down the, down the lane and you know it's going to go in the gutter if those bumpers aren't there. Yeah. And the bumper's job is not to knock the pins down. The bumper's job is just to keep the ball going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's where the, the, the best developers, coach developers, they just keep the, the student, the coach, going in the right direction till they have that aha moment and they realize, you know, it's, it's that old saying, you know, the best teachers don't they tell you where to look, but they don't tell you what to see. Yeah. And they give you that opportunity to, to experience it yourself. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, I mean, I, my, my personal belief is a bit, a bit of a balancing act. Um, do you guys struggle with, with getting coach developers and, and finding staff and people who are, are keen for that role? Uh, Cause a lot of, a lot of times um, they still want to coach. <laughs> they still want to be in charge of a team and, and, and have their own group where they can, you know, do it their own way. Um, I think it's, yeah, definitely. So we signaled that there was a need for this role. And right now, it's very difficult to find them. Um, I mean, in lots of ways, part of the reason for that is, is that because there's, you're having to, in some cases, re-educate people who've been coach educators out of being coach educators to being coach developers, because it's quite a different role. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. I mean, we were looking in the high performance context, literally had this conversation yesterday. Um, and you can almost count them on one hand the people who've got the kind of breadth of experience to be able to work at this level. Um, And so one of the things that is happening is it's actually becoming um, a profession and we're developing, for example, things like professional standards and uh, you know, kind of degree programs and things like that for people to be able to actually go into that as a valuable route. So uh, they can do that kind of in parallel with their coaching journey, or they can complete their coaching journey and say, right now I want to give back and I want to go into coach development. So they're coaching when they retire, doesn't have to stop. It's an alternative pathway for them. And then by doing so, you can begin to signify that as a, as a, as a route for people. The other route is um, apprenticeship. So looking at a coach development apprenticeship so that you can kind of learn on the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because one of the other things we're trying to do is not just apply it in a talent context or a high performance context, but also apply it in a community context where people are doing really difficult work, mm-hmm. um, you know, often in, with, with difficult environments. So, but yeah, you're right. It's still at the early stages. It's definitely a, a, an area that is significantly underdeveloped, but I think it's a great opportunity for people who've been out there who, um, you know, want to be able to pass back some of their experiences. I forgot to mention this, by the way, um, there's been some quite successful models of peer mentoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost just putting people together in teams and peer to peer and creating those small kind of groups. You made the point earlier on, you do your kind of, you know, you do your residential or whatever it is, or you get your information and then you're left to your own devices. Whereas actually nowadays, I think lots of coaches are sort of grouping together on WhatsApp or on Slack or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and just firing things back and forward. Russell Earnshaw does that great, um, magic Academy, you know, which is basically groups of coaches throwing ideas and different things. Um, 
what's his name, Dick, uh, Richard Bailey and uh, Martin Toms run the coaching science group on Facebook, 5,000 yeah. people and growing strong, yeah. connected yeah. coaches at UK coaching. So I think these groups are emerging now where coaches have got opportunities to interact and it's informal peer mentoring, but you could also team people up and say, right, you're going to work with you, you know, and all those sort of stuff. So that they actually, actually actively are supporting each other in lieu of the fact that they're not going to get as much time with their official mentor as they probably could. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, um, that piece, the, the unofficial learning, that, that sort of self-guided, you know, you seek out mentors, you seek out individuals that you can learn from, uh, is a vital piece. I've, I've said before in, in presentations, I've, I think I've learned more from mentors than I have from all of the residential licenses I've taken combined. Yeah. Because you're, you're getting real-world, hands-on, yeah, boots on the ground experience, and and sometimes it's just a really simple reflection. It's it's yeah. just a, it's a simple comment after a session. Yeah. You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, maybe next time try this. I've done this in the past. It's worked really well for me. And then you go back and beat yourself up over all the mistakes you made, and then you 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 come back and try it again in a different way. So, uh, I, I think it's a really important piece, the, the mentoring side of it. Um, and it, and it can absolutely be that peer to peer. I mean, that's one of the benefits I think of the residential piece is that you develop that sort of um, fraternity of people that are on a course together and um, it, it can be physically demanding. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're oftentimes out on the pitch. You're, you're involved in the sessions yourself. Um, most, most coaches are not in the, peak physical condition that they maybe once were as an athlete. So, yep. <laughs> um, you know, you're all, you're all in it together sort of thing. So, uh, and, and that, I find that that sharing that goes on that cross learning across uh, different, different groups that are on those courses is a really beneficial piece. Definitely. Um, so uh, Jason, I'd, I'd love talking to you. Um, I've, I've just had, uh, two little ones just come home. Um, <laughs> my daughter's good. been away on a outward bounds two days. She's been on a residential. She's only six. So it's like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> so, um, I probably, probably need to go and say hello and uh, find out what went on, on this, uh, on this, um, crazy weekend or a couple of days that she's been on. And, um, so, uh, look, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I, first probably came across not you yourself but your you in your new role through the brilliant youtube video that went out of you doing a presentation i think to a load of coaches in canadian soccer talking about all of the different challenges that you face that i highly <laughs> recommend people people look look for and search out but in the meantime i know you're pretty active on twitter and stuff like that how can people uh, get in touch with you and maybe just sort of follow the sort of stuff that you're doing and and keep track really yeah, sure. Um, Twitter's uh, probably a good place to start. At um, Jason DeVos is my, my Twitter handle. I'm not on there as much as I, I used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just a function of time. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do. And I, I don't have the time I'd like to be able to engage. I, I try and interact with everybody that, that reaches out. Uh, so that's one place. Um, but they can also send me an email, jdevos at canadasoccer.com. Uh, by all means, reach out and, and happy to share whatever we're doing. And, and, uh, and hopefully it, it can be a, a learning journey for, for both parties. And, and, and that because I'm always looking for better ways to do things, better ideas. Uh, I, my team and I are, are, are small. There's not many of us, but we're always looking around the world to, uh, to people like yourself to, to learn from and, and engage with. Well, um, all the best with everything you're doing. I know it's um, having been invo involved in sort of similar st style 
change initiatives i know how daunting it can be sometimes and um yeah it's definitely like uh eating an elephant um you've got to do it a <laughs> one, bite at a time yeah, one bite at a time exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so um hey, all, all the best and um hopefully we can we can catch up again in uh maybe a few months time or so and as things are moving on and new challenges emerge and sort of let's explore them and discuss them yeah brilliant sounds great thanks for having me Stuart. Thanks for listening to the Talent Equation podcast. If you like the show, then please consider supporting it by leaving a review on your favorite podcast player, telling your friends about it, or even becoming a hero and show your appreciation by becoming a patron. Just head over to thetalentequation.co.uk and click on the Becoming a Patron button at the top of the page. Boom. There you have it. Wow, that was a great chat. When the time just literally flew by, might not quite have hit the five-hour mark, but certainly, uh, certainly took me by surprise when uh, when the little ones came back. Um, amazing, uh, amazing conversation, Jason. Thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed your insights. Not many people would uh, would do what you're doing, which is, you know, go from being outside the system, throwing the stones, taking, uh, you know, uh, to actually going and trying to do something about it. Uh, somebody once said to me. That uh, it's very, it's a lot of people out there take it, take the easy way and knock bricks out of the wall. It takes somebody very brave and committed to actually start putting the bricks into the wall and start building it yourself. So, huge admiration for you. Uh, I think you're doing an amazing job, and uh, all power to you, and uh, and the best of luck with the with the task ahead of you on some of those long journeys. And if I can hopefully uh, help with some of these podcasts, then or then that's great. Um, uh, anyway, a couple of people I need to thank uh, for coming on board as supporters of the podcast, Jason Chase and uh, Snorri Orn Arnaldson. Um, sorry if I've got your name wrong, Snorri, um, but uh, uh, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you guys came on as supporters, uh, helping helping keep it going and, uh, and, and keeping the, the recordings coming, flowing to your, uh, to your inbox. Um, in the meantime, I uh, hope you all have a great week of coaching and remember, ditch those drills. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.